Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Untitled Art Podcast, recorded live here at Miami Beach at the 12th edition of Untitled Art. My name is Annie Lyle Slaughter, and I work in the VIP Relations and Communications Department here at Untitled. I'm delighted to be introducing this panel discussion presented by our exhibitor, Albert Spenda, featuring sculptor Sharif Bey in conversation with Rachel Delphia, curator at the Carnegie Museum of Art. The two will be discussing Bay's work since his major 2021 exhibition at the Carnegie Museum of Art, which the artist exhibited a survey of his studio practice alongside pieces created on site in response to the museum's collection. They'll also be discussing Bay's newest series, The Guardians. Rachel Delphia is the Alan G. and Jane A. Lehman's curator at the Carnegie Museum of Art and a specialist in modern and contemporary design and craft. Sharif Bey is an artist and educator from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He holds a PhD from Penn State University. He's a 2022 recipient of the United States Artist Fellowship and his work can be found in numerous museum institutions and collections. It's a pleasure to hand the mic over to Rachel who will be beginning our conversation today. I hope you all enjoy it. Great. Thanks so much, Annie. Thank you for that introduction. And hi, Sharif. Hello. It's nice to share a stage with you again. It's good uh, to be here. So I thought that maybe I'd just start by telling everyone a little bit about our working relationship. So Sharif and I first met uh, almost six years ago. His work was on view at the Pittsburgh Glass Center, where he had a residency and an exhibition. And uh, I'd heard his name for many years and hadn't actually met the man, the legend. And I reached out and said, would you take me on a tour of his show? And uh, we probably spent two, two and a half hours talking about your work. Uh, and since then, we've had the opportunity to work on a solo show at Carnegie Museum of Art. It was postponed a little by the pandemic, which actually gave us a lot of time for ideas to percolate and a lot of time for Zooms. And I think ultimately was beneficial to our curator artist relationship and also to the show. Um, and so since then, I feel like we're the Sharif and Rachel Roadshow. Um, so my job is to ask the questions and Sharif's job is to... Uh, <laughs> to Doesn't take uh, much to get me going. Yeah. So um, I thought, Sharif, we could start with uh, an object that is really a touchstone for you, the Nkisi and Kandi figure from Central Africa. So why don't you tell us about when you first encountered this work and how you've responded to that in your, in your practice? Well, as some people might know, um, I was a museum kid and I started going to the uh, Saturday creative arts classes at the Carnegie Museum that happened to be the same program that uh, Andy Warhol attended decades before me, uh, Philip Perlstein, Dwayne Michaels. And um, one of the beautiful things about the Carnegie Museum is that the Carnegie Museum of Art and the Carnegie Museum of Natural History are kind of one and the same, although they're considered two different museums. And I like to think that um, my formative education, not just in looking at art and learning how to ask questions, but even kind of seeing the relationship between the formal properties of nature and the formal properties of art. So I like to think that my affinity for modernism came by way of looking at bones and, and birds and geological structures that I discovered as a kid um, through the program at the Carnegie Museum. 
So I was around 10 years old and I encountered this Nkisi figure that I think has been perpetually on exhibition, you know, since at least the early to mid 70s. And what I remember at the time, and of course, I wasn't the kind of kid to go and read what it was about, but the, just being hit with the, the curiosity and the sense of wonder of, you know, what is this thing? And, and interestingly, what Nkisi is, is the, world, the, world, is, is the impression I got. Something that is otherworldly. You know, what is this other world? What does that mean? And even, even in its original context, it sparks that same curiosity. This is an object that is intended to interface with other worlds and properties that actually uh, give voice to divine properties, divine power, medicinal power. Uh, so this idea of containment, of spirit, of protection, of divinity, um, of ancestry, those, those, those things were actually starting to resonate with me even as a 10-year-old, although my vocabulary wasn't the extent that it is now. And, um, and years later, it started to kind of haunt me. And, and eventually, you know, those figurative properties and, and more importantly, like the verb of making, because when I look at things like that, I see, I see action, the idea. It's not just like an inanimate thing. These things, you know, they live. Even, even though we kind of encase them as, as anthropological objects, they have a life. And, and I think even as a kid, I was starting to think and wonder about like, how did this thing once exist in the world? Yeah, and, and materially, usually these are wooden figures. They're often packed with um, medicines, materials in the head and in the belly that give them some of their, their powers. And then I think the hardware is such an important point because there's, there's nails and things driven into it, right? And that's something that you've really incorporated into your practice. And, and also wanting to use things that have real history is really important. You know, uh, when I think back, so these things are vessels because I, I came to be a vessel maker as an art student, as a pottery student. I started out as a pottery apprentice and, and these other things started to kind of find their own way. You know, I'm, I'm an educator, so I'd be remiss not to kind of talk a little bit about how ideas take shape. But I, just, I remember being an art student and feeling a certain amount of pressure to be original right? You gotta, you, gotta, you gotta have your thing. You're an artist. And, and I think it's an unreasonable pressure for art students because invariably we will find our uniqueness if we don't get trapped and inhibited by society. We're all unique individuals. So for me, being kind of in that place where there's so many beautiful traditions to be a part of in the interim. So while we, while we work to find ourselves, we work in those traditions. So for me, I was, you know, a clay artist, and invariably these, these influences, you know, found their way into this lexicon that was, it's, I like to think of it as an un, un, unconventional intersection between this Western vessel history making um, and, um, and in Kesey figures, because figures are also vessels. And that's something that we don't think about as much as we maybe should. So I think in many ways, you've gravitated to these objects, whether they're traditional objects from the Congo culture in Central Africa or 
um, vessels the world over, but or also um, objects of adornment, necklaces and things. You know, there's a lot of touchstones in your work um, that convey some kind of cultural status, convey power. And I was just wondering, how do you how do you draw upon these these many forms, and how does this relate? to your interest in diasporic identity? Well, one of the things that I often talk about as a, as a child of the diaspora is the, uh, these, these, these questions. And I, and I spent time in, in Africa, and I realized that those questions are alive and well, you know, in the, in the place of inception for these objects too, because of the impact of the colonizer on both sides of the ocean. So, so people are still, even in parts of Africa, looking at themselves through the eyes of others as they try to figure out how they function economically, ecologically, socially. So when I think about my place as an artist in the diaspora, I look at things like uh, fault lines, puzzle pieces, vestiges, uh, conjecture, uh, fetish, colonization you know and there's so many things where there's almost a a literal tug of war of influences that we're trying to claim and, and it's being claimed back so in many instances we're responding to influences that have been recycled and recycled once over so, so there's sometimes where i look at images that somebody might think relate to a minstrel show but then they also relate to ivory coast masks so it's like, on which side of the ocean do we begin to negotiate and appropriate and reclaim images? And as, again, as a child of the diaspora, I feel like I'm well positioned to, to start that conversation and to, to really keep that conversation alive. So I love the idea of, of this fault line and what we do with that fault line. So we put it, we in other words, if something is broken and we put it back together, there are still, uh, here's my SAT word, interstices. So with, with, I'm a college professor. So I'm like, working on your GRE, you got to get these, these SAT and GRE words together. But the, this, this idea of fragments and spaces within fragments, and to me, these are generative spaces for artists to pose questions that anthropologists or geologists or sociologists or historians aren't asking. So what do we do with the spaces between as we negotiate time and identity? It's interesting because I think I see that um, within your practice and the way that you are revisiting your own past, this kind of auto-archaeology, auto-ethnography. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about um, how you recycle and come back to and kind of revisit yourself and your past work and bring that forward? Well, I feel very fortunate, although at the time I didn't know why the hell I went to get a PhD because <laughs> I was literally kind of roped into it. It's like, I make things and I get C's in class. Well, I'm, how am I going to get a PhD? But it, it did teach me how to think about research in a different way. And one of the ways that I, I think about research, and, and again, talking about what these generative pieces mean. So if we were to look at this from a material history perspective, you know, like literally I've been working in clay since I was 13. I'm, I'm about to turn 50. So I have, you know, decades and decades of rediscovering literal pieces of things that I made and gave to my aunt or 
things that I gave to my uncle and re, you know, reacquired after he passed away. But I'm, I'm recycling influences and I'm literally sometimes building things with shards or fragments of pieces from 1988 or 1987. But also in, in doing that, I'm revisiting experiences and I'm revisiting interactions. And, um, you know, and it's literally like, uh, like me taking my 50 year old self and, 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 and having a new encounter with my 15 year old self and, and all that goes with it. So again, it's, it's a way of renegotiating the passage of time and it's a way of pulling experiences that may be seemingly marginal into the forefront, you know, like a formative experience. And, and it's, it's almost in some ways like, a, like coming back and, and conquering a bully where there may have been an inhibition that I had at a 50, as a 15 year old, but it's like, oh, gender doesn't go down that way for me anymore. Or I'm stronger on my stance about this issue and, and I can pick back up on those issues or, or literally revisit like an occupational history that I may not have been proud of. I mean, I'm a PhD, my father has an eighth, gra eighth grade education and, and there may have been a time where I wasn't proud of that, but now I can, can, can appreciate his intellect and his culture and his contribution in a way that maybe I couldn't have as, as, a, as a young man. So to me, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful place to be as an artist because I have licenses, licenses that as a researcher, I may not have. I don't have to deal an IRB review to explore these things. And I don't have to go through a reviewer <laughs> to get published. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about your Guardian series, which we said we would do. And if you haven't been to Albert Spenda's booth, it's actually very close, right around the corner behind you. And it's, it's difficult to miss uh, Sharif's, uh, one of Sharif's Guardian figures. And this is a series. When did you start the Guardians? Um, the, the, the Guardians are about three summers ago. Okay. I started it, yeah. Um, so the, you know, we've seen... I've seen in your work for a long time this um, this continual quest to keep pushing yourself forward, to try something new, to always stay fresh, right? And and have these you know have these new challenges. If you haven't seen the guardians, the guardians are figures. Um, they're about five feet tall. They're made of red clay. They're like many of your Inkisi inspired works, impaled with. Um, nails and screws and eye hooks. I think sometimes ingeniously becoming hair or other features on the figure that I think takes it even beyond the original tradition. Um, so tell us a little bit about how they started though, because I know that there were some particular circumstances and facilities that, that gave you license to explore them technically, but then also what were you doing conceptually? Well, uh, to, to, to kind of harken back to my, my pottery years, if, if you find a, a piece of mine from the 90s, there are vessels that were almost obsessively carved, like scraffito. And that was my thing as a kid. And I came to appreciate the, the action, but also the amount of energy that goes into a really intricate pattern. But as I got older and, and started to invest in the uh, design property, of like, you know, polyrhythms or uh, or random repetition, I started to give myself more authority with kind of going off off the uh, off the radar with these patterns. 
But um, over time, one of the things that I, I started to invest in is how to create that sense of energy that just results from spending contemplative time with an object in process. So a lot of things means a lot of time, means a lot of moments. And, and it could be like literally my fingers going numb from impaling this clay with nails or my fingers literally bleeding from using you know, sharp clay shards and impelling them in work. But one of the things that I wanted to do with this particular series and is to really make something that has a confrontational presence. So beyond like an Enkisi figure that is maybe, you know, 18 or 30 inches tall, but to really, you know, make one that you can look in the eye. And, you know, and one of the things that's different is that the, uh, the energy is not so immediately gratifying. So to make something that's gonna, you know, that I can make and I have, you know, like the figures that Sydney has that are smaller, you know, there's, there's something gratifying about the being able to make something and before you know it, you're in the company of it. But then there's something very different when you don't have that immediacy. So it was challenging and different for me. It was almost like the birthing of these took a whole lot longer than what I'm used to. So, and then, and then if you see them, you'll see how much happens to them after the process. So they were made at the Archie Bray Foundation where there are large kilns in Helena. But then after being shipped to me in New York, it's almost like the best example I can give was like having giant Christmas trees shipped to me that I didn't have to adorn or decorate because that was really where the work began. But um, what, what distinguishes this work is the physicality of them. The, the, it's a different kind of presence. And I wanted to think of the monumentality of them. So cross-reference maybe with gargoyles or, or even thinking about them as like a town square statue as opposed to an object that has a different kind of non-Western, uh, dare, dare I not say, ritualistic uh, presence. So divine power now embodied in something that is six foot tall as opposed to 16 inches tall. You know, one of the things that has always fascinated me about your practice is your commitment to really being present as a person with your family. You're very much a family person. Um, and even as you're talking about these objects that are monumental, a lot of your work involves components. And so much is, you know, comes together in um, finding things from the past, things in the present, all these beads, all these pinch pots. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that process of, of sometimes making without knowing um, where the end is, but knowing that there's something meaningful in the making. Well, I mean, a lot of my work is is more about, as I often say, it's art as verb, not art as noun. So it's it's kind of this this rhythmic dance. And sometimes people look at things like, wow, that took a lot of time. Well, you know, if you're writing a letter, every every I and every Q, and if you look at it for every line that you write, it, it looks obsessive. Like it's a lot of T's and H's and Y's. But the truth of the matter is, you're it's a rhythmic process. But the components actually came out of this effort, as I was, you know, evolving as a, as a person, as a professional, as a family man, to uh, to be able to kind of take take on my practice in 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 chunks, like literally, you know, that. So some of the adornment pieces started that aren't represented here. These beaded necklaces evolved from me being a young parent 
and, and recognizing that I can't have eight hours a day in the studio. And if at any minute the baby could wake up or I could hear to the monitor and I'd have to run up the steps. So I started to make things that I can create in short order that would later become part of something larger. And the, uh, I like to think that the Guardian series is kind of me moving toward becoming an empty nester. It's because now I can, I can, you know, my, my youngest is 18 and I, they're mostly out of the house. Or, and, and I could take advantage of longer periods of time to invest in the work. So sometimes that, that rhythm is, is, is altered in a very practical way. But this is also an integral part of my identity. Like, how do you exist as a citizen of the world and as an artist at the same time? And, and, and to me, that content of the work is going to suffer if I have to, to, if I can't be a father and a husband, you know, then, then, I'm, then I'm not an artist. Because where does that inspiration and, and responsibility stem from? Uh, thank you. I, you know, I think... Um even as you're working on these larger pieces and the, the guardian that's in the booth is called Soul Collector. And if you haven't had a chance to see it yet, literally um, threaded onto the many nails, the pieces of hardware in this strong female figure are all these little heads, these little clay heads. And they're basically pinch pots. Um, and some are old and some are new, right? And this harkens back again to my... Uh my training as a potter, so there's aspects of my identity. But now that you mentioned that, that's, there's something else I wanted to make sure content-wise I brought back into the conversation. Like when we negotiate influences that are non-Western, and this is one thing I run into all the time. So we see something, you're putting nails in it. Oh my God, that's so violent, you know? And, and there's so much baggage associated with how we, we process or interpret non-Western influences. And I mentioned earlier that tug of war, you know, and one of the things that I was thinking about recently, and I mentioned to you, is this passage from uh, Toni Morrison's uh, Beloved, where, where Paul D comes in the room and, and there's this like glowing red entity. And he says, uh, I'm, I'm getting goosebumps now thinking about it. He says, uh, girl, what kind of evil you got in there, you know? And she says in response, she says, uh, Seta is the main character. She says, it's not evil, it's just sad. So, you know, what is this, this, this baggage? What are we shouldering? And, and, and what we're shouldering doesn't have to necessarily be this uh, debilitating trauma. You know, we have, we as people from the diaspora have war stories. And those stories we can wear with pride and we can be proud of them, and we can hold them up. So in the case of this, this idea of soul collector, you know, I think of, uh, I know a lot of, uh, you know, I, I know it's not the same for a father to lose a child as it is for a mother to lose a child. You know, my mother lost a child. It's not the same. I know it's not the same. I can't imagine that grief, that pain, or what it means to wear that, but I know it's different for women because women are, you know what women are doing. <laughs> You're creating in a way that a man never could. So anyway, when I think about this maternal figure carrying these souls, and there's also something, and my wife will tell you because she's a birth educator and, and a superhero and everything else, but DNA-wise, 
there's something that women carry through generations that men cannot trans. And she reminds me that my grandson is her, not me. <laughs> but she's carrying that with her. And we're carrying the pain. We're carrying the pride. And, you know, and some of it's haunting, but also some of it, uh, you know, provides this, this shaft of light that, that keeps us moving forward. And, and it, it, I understand that, again, fetish and science fiction and conjecture and colonization, all these things impact how we receive the mystique of non-Western influences. But it's really important to me that, um, that we move forward. And, and, you know, there's space for all those things. So I might make something that says, I see an Nkisi figure, they're like, well, I see a Fraggle Rock, or I see something from Star Wars. And, and, and that's a part of how influencers are negotiated in our contemporary society. So maybe Jim Henson's looking at Nkisi. You know, maybe George Lucas is looking at, you know, African art um, as, as they, you know, as they think things, as science fiction moves forward as well. So science fiction is based on fiction. Well, and I think as you're, um, you know, as you're talking through this, and I'm, I'm thinking about your own initial reaction as a young person to the Nkisi, and you've told me often that some people see violence and affliction, and you know, you saw this beautiful power, and that's what you took away from it. And I think um, with, you know, with your work, as something that, you know, that that I remind myself too is that there is, you know, it's it's not. Um, there are burdens, there are war stories, as you said. Um, there's also joy. There's a beautiful piece in the booth edition, in addition to The Guardian, that's part, um, which is part of your, um, your choir singers. And it's an uplifted voice. It's a vessel. It's also um, impaled with nails. Um, but it is a serene face that makes the top of this vessel. Um, so we're, we're about two-thirds of the way through, and we want to have some time to take some questions, but I wanted to ask you, before we do that, um, what are you working on? What are you working on now? What's coming up next? The, the newer pieces that I'm working on are, um, the scale of them is still, is, is still extreme, but they're more um, focused on, like, they're giant, like I say, giant heads sound so um, unsophisticated. But I'm, I'm working on pieces that are more focusing on hair adornment and the adornment of heads as opposed to the entire bodies. One of the things that, that I've been thinking a little bit about, and, and this is, again, one of the challenges with the figure, and particularly as a male working with so many female bodies, is I'm trying to be more conscious of what that means um, and, and wanting to focus more on crowns and hair and 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 the power of, of the head itself and its expression. So I guess in, in some ways I'm isolating that aspect of it. And of course, I'm continuing to work in the Guardian series as well. But that's something I'm a lot more conscious of now. Is, is I don't want to say moving away from, but being more conscious of how I present female bodies as a male artist. Mm -hmm. Are there any, any questions for Sharif? Hi. First, I just want to say thank you. Um, and hi, I'm Grace. I wanted to ask you specifically about the adornment of the nails on your figures. Materially speaking, I feel like there is a lot to 
there's a lot to unpack when it comes to putting something that's metal inside of a ceramic piece. I'm a ceramicist as well. And so, you know, putting metal into ceramics when it comes to like the firing process and materially speaking, how you create a piece obviously is very difficult. And so you add the metal after you make the pieces. No. Okay. So it's metal that can survive the highest temperatures as far as conceptually, when you think about like putting the metal in the pieces, like how does that tie into anything when you think about building your figures? You mean it's like from an engineering perspective, like structurally or? I mean, specifically conceptually, it's, it's interesting to me to think about um, the metal melding with the ceramics and what that means like conceptually. Because it is a, it is like a risky thing. It can lead to cracks. It can lead to different things in your pieces. Yeah. So, so aesthetically, timing is everything as from a technical perspective. So, so I literally put shards and metal into earthenware clay at a temperature in which, or at a time in which it will shrink around the clay, and then I fire it at the temperature to where the shrink it, shrinking beyond that isn't to the extent to where it's going to do any damage to the piece. Now, sometimes I get what I call art marks that could look like, and, and, and if they're not structural, most of the time I welcome them because they tend to look like things like varicose veins or, or, or wrinkles like aging wrinkles or, or hair. Um, and, and most of the time, I welcome those kinds of cracks because of, you know, it, it to me is almost like, I mean, we have painting and we have painters who historically celebrate a vocabulary of painting that's not about controlling the material as much as it's about allowing that material to do what that material does. And I feel like ceramics historically, and it's changing a little bit now, um, but it's more on, I was having this conversation today, it's more on the opposite spectrum where we have a lot of glaze blob trends, right? And, and people are firing on that end and everything's so funky. But there's so much unrealized vocabulary that is much more fundamental. I fire a lot of work in my fireplace. I fire a lot of work outside in the backyard when my kids are around. And stuff happens. Stuff happens that's really interesting. And I try to celebrate that. So there is still some control. But as I often tell my students, I say, I'm not scientific. I said, I'm just experienced and lucky. So there, there is a, there is a some, somewhat of a difference. And, and when I'm saying that, what I'm essentially saying is that I embrace serendipity and I make way for that. Um, if, if you know me, you know that I'm not really uptight about how things happen. And I'm also prepared to watch something else happen. So it's not like, oh, that didn't work out. It's like, okay, I'm going to put that in the peripheral and one day it's going to like start glowing and it's going to find its way to the middle of the workshop. And it happens all the time. Sometimes it takes 10 years. Sometimes it takes 14 years. But there are things in my work, literally in this show, there are little pieces from 1999. It might just be that one thing in the corner next to the toe, <laughs> but it's from 1999. So I think having that kind of openness and in, in, in embracing that aspect of the technology is important. And, and also embracing your spirit in that way, right? Not, not every thought is an important thought, but it's a thought nonetheless. 
I'm, I'm chuckling a little because I'm thinking about your interactions with our objects conservator in the museum. <laughs> um, and there's, you know, there's a lot that we end up expressing on the museum side. This is the artist's intent. Yeah, the metal is flaking off. Yeah, there's actually a kind of beautiful fissures and cracks and spider webs where each clay shard or each nail enters it. Um, but it wouldn't be the same work if it was just perfectly in that hole without the kind of evidence of that. And, you know, I think I've also in the time that, you know, I've been so fortunate to, to know you and, and, um, and work with you. Um, I've seen that, you know, you make a piece, you sent me pictures, I loved it. And then you tell me, oh, I busted in the kiln. <laughs> and I'm so sad because I love this face. And then, you know, a year later, you've taken the broken face on these urns that didn't work out and totally reincorporated it into something new. Um, and it's, it's beautiful and it, it, it brings something to the work. It really does. It, it's, it's hilarious because there's one particular piece that came to mind when you said that. And it's like a piece from maybe 93 or 94. And like my brothers were like drinking and wrestling and they knocked it down and it broke. And that, like central shard of that piece, it's a face, is now part of a piece that's in a museum. You know, and it was like, it, it's, it wasn't garbage. I was just like, I, I kind of gilded that piece and also that memory is really with us. But um, to your point about nails, the nails are like galvanized and the zinc burns off of the nails and it turns black. And the funny thing about it is, uh, there's one collector who has one of these pieces, it's small, over time, if I don't like sandblast it or blow it with air, I get this like black dandruff that comes off of them. And some people like they go behind it with a dust buster every other day until it's all gone. And I had this collector, Chris, so I was telling you about, I went and visited his piece and it's like, it's, it has this beautiful like halo of black dandruff around it. Oh, he didn't touch it. No, it was just he there. Just, he just lets it, it settle. And I'm like, other people are hitting this with canned air and vacuuming it for weeks. And I was like, maybe they just let it go and do its own thing. So, you know, so I think sometimes on, on the end of the collector or the, or the, uh, the steward of the work is, is really somebody who knows me and knows what's intended can be more comfortable with that. I think it's really beautiful, too, because you talk about the verb rather than the noun, right? And even the finished piece is sitting there and it's continuing to act. And that's also so like telling because these these non-Western objects that find their way or that are you know looted and become these museum objects, it's almost like when you put the vitrine on those objects, they retire. You know, this thing had a life as an object in some sort of ritual. And now we can look at it and we can think about the purpose it once served, but all the memories, all it embodied now, now it's for the spectator. Now it's for the colonizer. Now it's for the institution. And my work plays on that. I'm not saying I don't want my work to be in a museum, but my work becomes a commentary about the relationship between the person who's speculating and wondering and assuming and, 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 and using an interpretive lens that is ignorant or colonistic. And what is the role that we play? Or, or imposing some sort of lens that, that is ludicrous on it. Um, but, um, but that's the relationship that we artists have to, you know, one way or another prepare for or anticipate. Did you have a question? Yeah. 
Thank you for your presentation. Um, two questions, actually. The first one is, can you talk about how you made the shift from vessel to sculptural practice? And then also, because you mentioned in your introduction, the Pittsburgh Glass Residency. So I'm wondering, what was your experience with glass? Do you still work with glass? Excellent. I'm, I'm on the board, so I should do a plug for them anyway. <laughs> so yeah, um, my, my work in glass started in 2017, and it's been ongoing. Um, one of the first things I realized when I started working in glass compared to other materials is that it's kind of inherently collaborative. Like I couldn't go there and somebody teach me, just like somebody saying, um, show me how to make pottery and I can make some giant vases next week. You know, that's not going to happen. So I worked in closely with a glass caster and a glass blower, and I continue to do that. Um, usually making glass components that are later incorporated into my ceramic work. But my earliest experiences in clay was figurative modeling. And, and then I learned how to become a vessel maker. And then I also learned how to use the wheel as a way of creating forms that I would make sculpture from. But what ultimately happened as I kind of matured and became more confident with my, my voice is that I, I started to basically embrace all that as my repertoire instead of saying, oh, well, I don't know how this part of my work, even as far as like, and, and even that's nostalgic. Like I'll give you one example that I really appreciate. Um, a lot of uh, entry-level ceramics assignments are like, you make something hollow, you cut it in half and hollow it out and put it back together because you're not, you're not, con you're not positioned to like make something volumetrically, at least not successfully. So, um, so I started making things later and I, I know how to make them volumetrically but there's a different sensibility when something is solid and then when something is made hollow so i started making things and hollowing them out and putting them back together so um and and, and, and in doing that it literally it's it's almost like finger painting for a little kid like it, it's taking me back to like i remember i used to make things this way you know it was 35 years ago but it's it's interesting to bring my new skills and my new reflections into that kind of process. So not even talking about content. I mean, there's something powerfully nostalgic about process and how you make things, whether it's, you know, making a cake without using the same kind of, you know, like I can't find those kind of sifters anymore. Right. It's like, I, I miss that sound, you know, it's like a vintage sifter, right? But it's a very specific thing that, that for me connects to a very specific times. And I, and I want my grandson to have that sound in his life, right? So I think revisiting process in that way. So, so, so basically, I was like making vessels and making figures. And for, I would say about 20 years ago, these were separate entities. And I remember being in a lecture and somebody saying, I really like the pottery you're making and I really like the sculpture you're making. And I see you're also making these kind of biomorphic forms. You know, it will be really interesting to see all these things together in one body of work. I remember that question coming from an audience and to which I replied, you're absolutely right. That would be cool, but it has to happen in its own time. And it has to happen authentically and it has to happen organically. So to me, it's not like this contrived thing, like it would be so cool to put a head on top of that pot and have an arm come out of the side. You know, it's really, to me, um, it's very much about process and subconsciousness and just 
doing that dance. I always say I'm jazz, not classical. So I'm, I'm, I'm jamming out in the studio and, and I'm taking notes after I'm, I'm done. So excellent question. Thank you. All right. I think we're, I think we're supposed to wrap up now. But maybe we can talk offline. Thank you, Sharif. Thank you, Untitled. Thank you, audience. Thank you for making me so comfortable. 